Welcome to the Formed in the Word podcast, a production of the Augustan Institute. Your hosts, Dr. Jim Prothro and Dr. Israel McGrew, will review the lectionary readings for this Sunday's Mass, explain their context, and help you to appreciate the Church's wisdom in selecting them. Welcome to Formed in the Word. I'm Israel McGrew. And I'm Jim Prothro. And we are professors of sacred scripture at the Augustan Institute. Today we'll be looking at the lectionary readings for the first week of Lent. Uh, we'll explain each reading in turn, their context, some of their main points, and draw out some of the continuity between these readings. Mm-hmm. Uh, in her wisdom, the Church has put the lectionary together to lead us into the mystery of Christ. Uh, so we want to reflect today on uh, God's foreshadowing of Christ in the Old Testament, uh, and how Christ fulfills the Old Testament scriptures, and um, uh, how his gospel and grace speak to and address the fundamental problems of human existence uh, to raise us up to the divine life. Yeah. And if this is your first time with us, uh, this is a resource for entering into the lectionary um, to prepare yourself to enter into the Mass. So we hope this will be a valuable resource for lay people who desire to prepare themselves for the upcoming Sunday Mass, and especially also for priests as they seek to prepare their homilies, uh, prayerfully enter into Scripture so that they can better feed their congregations on the Word. Amen. Let's open up with a brief prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Oh God, you are a God who speaks to us, who comes to seek us. You spoke to Adam just after he had sinned to say, where are you? Thank you that you communicate to us and reveal yourself to us. Please do so here through your written word, through which you disclose the mystery of who you are and what you have done, are doing, and will do to save us and bring us to your kingdom. Through Christ Jesus, amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right. uh, This week we have just some classic readings. It's really kind of low-hanging fruit. Um, So we start with Genesis 2 and 3. So the story of the Garden of Eden, uh, including the fall. So we start off with the creation of the man and the creation of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in chapter 2. And then we move to chapter 3 with the fall. And so obviously this is a very rich and very familiar passage. um, But we wanted to point out just a couple of things. In the last verse of chapter 2, which is not in the reading... Uh, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And there's a key term that runs uh, from this and through chapter 3, naked, or rather arum. Um, The man and the woman were both arum and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more arum than any other beast of the field. So this word arum uh, is translated as naked because they cover up their a room with fig leaves. This is nakedness. That's what you cover. Um, But it can also mean crafty, as in the serpents being crafty. And it can also mean wicked. And so when the man and the woman are naked, right, they've never experienced anything different. It's not that they don't see each other's bodies. They don't know they're naked. They just haven't ever thought of that as a significant thing. Hmm. However... Obviously, when they take the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then their eyes are opened, so to speak, such that they see that they're naked. Um, But really what they're seeing is now they're looking on each other's nakedness differently. They have a different vantage point, 
and they're also recognizing their own wickedness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's through disobeying God that nakedness becomes an occasion for shame because once you've made yourself a participant in the serpent's arum, in his craftiness, in his wickedness, in his rejection of God's law, uh, now nakedness becomes an occasion for shame. Now you have become wicked, and you can't look at the other people without your wickedness changing how you Mm. look at them and understanding also that other people are looking at you in that way. Mm. So it's a really subtle... uh, theme kind of developed throughout here. Yeah, that's right. It's really interesting the way that those uh, those two words that can be translated in these two ways, or the one word that can be translated these two ways, that Hebrew arum can be naked, just simply naked, and then clever. But then also, as you point out, to, to think about, um, uh, as you read through this text that is probably familiar to you, um, to th- kind of watch the textures of the relationships as we go from one movement to the next. And we won't be able to highlight all of them today because this is just, just a really, really rich passage um, and really important um, here at the beginning of the Bible about the human fall into sin um, and its consequences. Um, but when, when, when you live in a world where what you want is something I want for you because it's good for you and you don't have wants that are against me, and what I want is also good for you and everybody else because I don't have wants that are against you. I'm not selfish and against, I'm not anti anybody else. Adam and Eve in harmony with each other and in harmony with God uh, and with the rest of the created order that God has put them in, uh, then there's no need for defensiveness. There's no need to think about your own weakness or vulnerability or to be afraid of it uh, or to be afraid of the other person in it. Um, and uh, uh, But as we see, once the people sin, what do they start doing? Well, they start pointing the finger at each other. The first thing Adam mm-hmm. does is say, well, God, yeah, I ate it, but it was her fault and points to Eve. And now you live in a world where um, defensiveness is a base posture, right? My own weakness can always be exploited and my own desires can always be disobeyed or kind of neglected or run ramshot over by somebody else. Um, because that's what they've done already to each other and to God in this first sin. Mm-hmm. And so you uh, point out that Adam sort of blames her, but he's also sort of blaming God. Right. The, right. the woman, woman whom you, you gave, gave me. me. <laughs> All right. Jinx. Yeah, indeed. Um, I also want to just point out the, the tree of good and evil, right? The mm-hmm. tree of the knowledge of good and evil, excuse me. Um, this is part of creation and apparently part of God's creation and therefore apparently good, if we kind of remember that echo from Genesis 1. And I think it's worth considering how the tree of knowledge of good and evil might be good, right? Hold on, this is an occasion for the fall. Well, so was the woman, so was the serpent. And so you see how it resulted in such evil, but that's because they misused it, right? They used it in order to disobey God. Whereas if in this initial state of original justice, intimacy and trust with each other and with God, um, if there's no occasion for sin, there's also no occasion for merit. Mm -hmm. And part of being made in the image and likeness of God is having reason and having freedom. And for freedom to be exercised virtuously, to be exercised meritoriously, you have to be able to make a choice of real moral value. And so by giving them the tree and saying, don't touch this, God actually gives them the chance 
to love him, right? To choose to obey and to choose to honor and love God in that way. And so the serpent's temptation um, is using something that's already there, that God already gave them as an occasion to obey and merit mm-hmm. and love him. And now they actually have an opportunity an opportunity to um, continue to choose that, to cling to that righteousness and that original justice, and thereby to merit more. Mm. Um, and I also want to suggest that you know this tree that gives them a knowledge of good and evil, well, the way the story works is that it gives them knowledge of evil by experiencing evil, mm. right? They give themselves to the serpent's arum, his craftiness, his wickedness. They become participants in his wickedness. They experience wickedness. They experience evil. But it's also possible to get a knowledge which is not from experience, but a knowledge which is from obedience. Uh, You can think about what is it to know what sleep is? Mm. Well, you can know sleep by experiencing sleep, but really you know sleep by waking up from sleep and by observing other people sleeping. The person who sleeps doesn't know that they're asleep. And so the experience of a thing isn't always the best way to knowledge of it. Um, A more striking example might be, what is it to know what sex is, right? Who has better knowledge of the significance of sex, a nun or a pimp? Well, clearly a a pimp might have some experience of it, Mm -hmm. an experience and a knowledge which a nun wouldn't have. But who actually knows the significance of it? The person who does it not in accordance with God's will, Mm. right? The God who created the thing itself and knows what it is, or the person who obeys Mm. and submits. Mm. Mm. And so this knowledge of good and evil that they acquire, they acquire through disobedience. They acquire through an experience of evil. Whereas if they had chosen the good, they could have had that, other sort of knowledge, a knowledge of obedience, Mm. a knowledge that, well, the serpent actually wanted us to do the bad thing, but that's bad. Mm. I'm Mm. not going to do that. Yeah, that's right. And it's um, uh, uh, just to to sort of tie um, this in with something else, it um, sometimes this passage can get read in a way, um, as as you've noted, uh, as though the, the, the real sort of like human problem in Genesis is humans knowing stuff, mm-hmm. right? That this is like, oh, see, they were innocent and stupid, but then they ate from the tree of knowledge, and knowledge is what made them evil, and God wanted us to just all be sort of like mm-hmm. happy idiots. Um, uh, but that's uh, that can't be true here, because for God to give a command, don't do this, they have to know now because God is good, and they know that, know that, um, uh, they, they know that this other thing, to do it, would be bad. Because mm-hmm. the good God said, don't, you'll die. <laughs> um, right? The tree has some sort of place. It's part of God's good creation uh, in the garden, but it's not to be eaten by Adam and Eve. That's not its purpose. And yeah, that's not uh, how to use it properly. That's not how to use it properly. Um, and, and especially because the reading ends at uh, verse 7 in the lectionary from Genesis 3, uh, uh, really focusing us in, not even on the results later, um, but just on the sin, on the temptation she experiences, eating from the tree, giving some to her husband. They ate and their eyes were open. They have this experiential knowledge now of good and evil. Um, 
that uh, some of your folks uh, in your parish or even you um, might get that impression or may have heard that. Um, so it's really worth emphasizing uh, uh, again in that context uh, everything Dr. McGrew was just saying, um, that the problem isn't knowledge. The problem is experiential knowledge of evil and that that's what they have jumped into, not a knowledge that brings them to obedience, mm -hmm. but a knowledge that brings them to right, disobey God and therefore also cut themselves off uh, from the Lord by this disobedience, not to turn toward him and say, you've told us to do this, now we know that it's a good thing and we can choose to do it right, mm -hmm. and do well and have merit, right? but now we're going to choose against it. We're actually going to turn away from you. And of course, that's what Adam and Eve do after they eat and they realize that they're naked. They hide from God right? because it's, it's ruptured their relationship. Uh, and we'll see that... Um, as we continue to go on through the readings, and we'll see that um, uh, the way in which God brings about the solution to that in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, first, we'll get another image of this fallen human condition. Right, so Genesis 3 obviously being the fall, the introduction of original sin in the Western tradition. And Psalm 51 gives us just a poignant portrait of this. Right, so this, um, the superscription for Psalm 51 uh, locates this, attributes it to David and um, locates this when Nathan the prophet went in and re rebuked David after he had gone into Bathsheba. Um, right? So this is, you know, David's a hero in the Old Testament. And I remember as a kid first um, actually watching a veggie tale about this and wondering, well, what Bible story is that about? Right? Because King George and the ducky, you know, something silly like this. Um, and then being really shocked to be like, oh, wait, David and Goliath, that David? The David who wrote all these Psalms, that David did this? And so this is, um, it's a decisive moment in David's career in that whatever hopes for, you know, final salvation in Israel as a political institution and through a political Davidic dynasty um, is kind of disillusioned by this moment. So it's an important point in uh, salvation history in this sense. But it also gives us an extraordinarily beautiful psalm. Now, this is a psalm that is close to mine in Dr. Prothero's hearts um, in some liturgies. And it gives us an image of sin, not as just something somebody, some, not just as discrete acts that people do, but David in this, you know, egregious act comes to recognize something about himself, right? I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so there's a, a recognition of uh, how depraved, how broken, how distorted his um, inner self is, and a recognition that only God can blot out sin. Not just the little things, but actually resolve the problem of the human condition which Genesis 3 gives us an account of. And the last verse in the reading, uh, either verse 15 or verse 17, depending on how the verses are uh, numbered, uh, after David's confession, after David's calling for God to create a clean heart with him and renew a right spirit, cast, not, cast me not away from your presence, you know, restore unto me the joy of your salvation, this beautiful prayer, uh, there's a, an inflection. Right. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. 
And uh, Mendelssohn's St. Paul Oratorio actually has Paul uh, pray this. Mm. And it's, again, very beautiful because there's the, you know, great sin, you know, Paul regretting very much his persecution of the church. But the result of this sin and conversion is zeal for God Mm. and a Mm. desire that the sinners would be converted. And so that's verses 13 and 14. And then verse 15, we get, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Mm. And this is how the church begins her liturgical day, right? The daily office that priests have to pray every day begins with this verse, which is really beautiful because it implies that everything that the church does, the entire liturgy, everything that the ordained priesthood does and everything that we do presupposes the first 14 verses of this, presupposes our recognition of our own sin and our recognition that only God can bring about our salvation, our conversion, Mm. and that we can then turn to God in this way. Yeah, there's a, um, uh, a couple of people who wrote a book um, called a sort of historical commentary on the Psalms. And when they come to Psalm 51, of course, it's just this enormous long commentary um, going through the way it's been used in Christian tradition. Um, and uh, the, according to them, it's quite safe to say that uh, this is probably the most regularly prayed in terms of the church's liturgy throughout mm-hmm. the last 2,000 years. Um, so Psalm uh, 110, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That was one of the most important Psalms, most regularly cited in the New Testament and in early centuries for kind of understanding who Jesus is, how he's our high priest and king at the same time, even though he's not from the line of Levi, right, which is the priestly uh, tribe in the Old Testament. Um, But in terms of daily lived practice of piety, Uh, this psalm here in memory of this event in David's life doesn't just point back to that one life. It's been inspired in a way that it encapsulates something about the reality of sin and the right response to it, right? Recognizing the depth of sin. Sometimes you you go like, I wasn't that bad this week. Do I have to say I've greatly sinned at the beginning of the Mass? Can I just say like, I had a couple of oopsies, you know? May I... Minima culpa, you know, like, you know, it's a my, but through my own kind of little bitty fault. Um, uh, but no, like that's, that's how we, that's how we turn. That's how we approach God. This can be on the lips of David. It can be on the lips of John Paul II. It can be on the lips of St. Paul. Um, uh, and it should be on my lips as well, right? To recognize truly the seriousness of sin, its depth as is done here in the Psalm but then also to turn in absolute utter hope in the God who has this abundant mercy, this steadfast love, who will blot out sins, right? And who will, right, by raising us back up and restoring us, uh, lead us so that we can, uh, as the psalm says later, teach transgressors your ways, um, so that a nation yet unborn will praise you, O Lord, right? Um, that, that there is not just uh, um, a kind of patching over of our sins, but real redemption and transformation with God. And that's, that's the reality that we live in as Christian people. Um, and of course, it's, it's one that we'll continue to see as we, we get to our next reading as well.
Yeah. But did you have more on this you wanted to bring up? No, that does. It's so it's rich. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all of them we could just sit with for half an hour each. Oh, I know, I know. We won't do that to you. So as we jump into the New Testament, uh, our uh, epistle reading comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5. Uh, and this is verses 12 through 19 in particular. Uh, and this is Paul's, uh, we call it his Adam typology. What's a type? What's a typology? We use that word a lot. What is that? Well, you're the Greek scholar. But <laughs> as an Old Testament scholar, I guess I'll say that um, types have antitypes. Not that these things are you know, opposed, but they stand over and against, not against, but as complements. They point towards each other. They reflect each other. Yeah, so Jesus is the antitype right. of the type, Types. not anti-like antichrist or anti, you know, me or like How against us, dislike but that other. they correspond. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so a type is, I guess in Latin, usually trans translated as figura, right? So a figure, mm -hmm. like in, think of an image, a literary figure, um, something which in some way is like, the shadow that preceded Christ. Yeah, you, to use other kinds of metaphors, you might be able to say that um, uh, this figure, this person in the Old Testament kind of has the same sort of shape and effects that mm -hmm. Christ does, right, that Christ fulfills more perfectly. Or you could also think about them in terms of patterns. So one of the places where Paul in Greek uses the word type um, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he's talking about Israel's being redeemed from the wilderness uh, or in, into the wilderness for the promised land. He says they were redeemed. They came out of the Egypt. They came through water. They had heavenly bread and food. They were headed to the promised land, but the ones who were unfaithful, right, perished and didn't make it. And he says, same way with us, right? We're redeemed from slavery to sin. Through water, we receive heavenly bread for the journey, Right? Uh, but that doesn't work kind of like magic if we don't also stay faithful to the Lord because we're headed for our promised land uh, of eternal life with the Lord. But if we're unfaithful and we reject him, we can also be in big trouble and mm -hmm. not make it. Um, so, that, so that one's not even a sort of specific person or thing, but that's like a pattern. Um, I'd say a lot of the specific persons and things correspond to a lot of the specific persons and things throughout. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. Um, another one is in First Peter, right? The the flood as being a type, a prefiguration of baptism, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and of course, uh, we're kind of at ground zero here in Romans five. That's right. Typology. That's right. So here in Romans five, the typology isn't Israel to the church, uh, it isn't Red Sea to baptism. It's just Adam to Christ. Um, so Christ fulfills, right, and is the antitype of Adam. Uh, and in this way, right? So uh, verses 12 through 14 in Romans 5, Paul says, I'm reading from the ESV CE here, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin isn't counted where there's no law. Nevertheless, yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning wasn't like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. <sighs> okay, there's a lot packed into those three verses. Here's the, the main point, right? Through Adam's transgression, right, what came into the world? Sin, right, the guilt of sin, and then the reality of it, right, in all of our relationships, right? Through sin came death. And something he'll say in a moment, also with sin and death, of course, is condemnation. 
um, uh, 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 judgment. Um, and he says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Adam brought this upon everybody, even those who didn't transgress a sort of like command that they had in stone or an explicit one like Adam had, like there's that tree over there, don't eat from it, right? Even people who don't even know, right? This is still the problem of original sin in the world, right? Um, uh, that, that comes upon everybody, sin and death. Christ, like Adam, is one person and his one actions have an effect over all of humanity. Right? Paul says, right, that was the trespass of Adam uh, and Eve as well, of course. He's focusing on Adam because he's going from Adam to Christ. Um, this was the trespass that brought about sin, condemnation, and death. But the free gift or the gift of grace, Paul says in verse 15, isn't like the trespass. It is like it because it sort of acts in the same way that Jesus as the one person does something that changes the fate of humanity uh, the way that Adam did. On the other hand, it's not like it because Adam did one bad thing and lots of people died and Jesus has eternal merits and eternal righteousness, right? Uh, uh, after so many sins, not just one, right? But Jesus' one life right, uh, uh, can atone for, right? all of sin, right, and the sins of all, all people. The free gift isn't like the result of the one guy's sin, he says in verse 16. For the judgment, the condemnation that came after one trespass right, uh, brought condemnation, but the gift following many trespasses brought justification. So Jesus, instead of sin, brings righteousness, truth, love, goodness, virtue, right, through the Holy Spirit shed out on all of us in imitation of him. That virtue and righteousness leads to life, right? and at the final judgment, not condemnation, right, but God's approval and justification. Uh, this reversal is uh, really key. Of course, um, when we think about it, it's worth remembering uh, uh, as we are, are meditating or as we're preaching that um, you don't have to make a choice to join the Adam problem. Right? You're sort of already there, <laughs> right? We're all born into it, right? Inherited original sin, right? In Christ, we need that new birth to receive the inheritance of life and righteousness in him. Um, and so for that, if we want to uh, uh, look around in Paul, all you have to do is go back to the paragraphs that come right before it, if that's a point that you need for yourself uh, to read or uh, to make for your people uh, as you prepare these texts for teaching and otherwise. Um, uh, that one joins in Christ's righteousness and life uh, by living in faith, right? Through Jesus's love, his grace that came for us while we were still sinners, and right, that reconciles us to him so that our relationship with God can be restored, so that we don't continue live hiding from God, turning away from him in sin, but that we turn toward him. Uh, verses nine, 8, 9, and 10 in Romans 5 are worth reading, and, and, and then we can um, uh, say a couple things and then jump to the gospel before we're done. Um, but verses 8, 9, and 10 in uh, Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since, therefore, we're now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Right, from condemnation. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled should we be saved by his life. Uh, and Paul calls in other letters, um, particularly 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, calls all Christians, even those who already believe, have already been baptized, already are living in Christ, to continue living in a life of penitence. And he says to them, be reconciled to God. You have been reconciled in Christ. Be reconciled to God by actually living in friendship with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would just pitch in two things real quick. Yeah. Uh, first of all, to recall us back to the topic of typology. Um, typology is how right, Christ's typological fulfillment of the Old Testament is the underlying assumption of so much of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Right? It's explicit in Romans and Corinthians and First Peter, um, but it's implied in throughout the Gospels. Right? Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that was Israel, but no, it's Jesus, right? Um, Jesus is fulfilling the patterns set out in the Old Testament. And so it's the presupposition of the New Testament, and it's also the guiding principle of the development of the lectionary. Right? This is the pattern that we see mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. week. Um, and the second point I would make is that Christ as the you know, antitype of Adam um, and this kind of mirroring we have of the fall and of salvation uh, really points to the importance of Christ's humanity, right? The, the mystery of salvation is predicated on the mystery of the incarnation of God taking on the human nature, which is why this was such an important controversy um, in the 4th and 5th century, um, which also explains the significance of what's going on in our gospel reading. Beautiful. Let's turn to it. Uh, so our gospel reading for the first Sunday of Lent, it's one you've heard before on lots of other first Sundays of Lent. Um, but it's the temptation of Jesus, and it's in the gospel according to St. Matthew this year. So it's Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Um, so Jesus has just been baptized, at which point he has been right declared by the heavenly voice, the Son of God in whom God is well pleased. And even though he has no sins of his own, he has identified himself with the people of God who are called to repent and confess their sins in John's baptism. Uh, and he has identified himself with them by coming to the water and sanctified those waters for us as well. Immediately after that, he's brought out into the desert and he undergoes three temptations by uh, the devil. Now, there's so much we could talk about here. <laughs> um, I want to, uh, and and you've heard it, and if you're a, a, a preacher, you've preached on it lots of times. Um, I do want to point out um, a couple of things, uh, thinking about the temptations and, and what do we see of Jesus here and what do we see ourselves called to. Um, first of all, we see Jesus, even though he has no sin, living penitently, right? Not only has he identified himself with sinners in his baptism, Right, though he has no sin, uh, he also fasts. Right? Uh, and here is precisely when he's fasting that he is having a confrontation with Satan's temptations to overcome them for us and for his own mission. Satan tempts Jesus in ways that um, might resonate with what some people would want of a Messiah. He says, if you're the son of God, if you are, see, he says, turn these stones into bread. Aren't you hungry? Why do you need to fast? You're the son of God. Just snap your fingers, make the stone bread, right? Just command it. Your word will be effective. Satan actually has more faith in the power of Jesus' words here 
than lots of other people we meet in the Gospels. <laughs> he says, just tell the stone to become bread, and it will. And Jesus says, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, God the Father. Then he takes him up to the top of the temple, and he says, well, jump down. Doesn't the psalm say that the Lord's anointed will be protected from harm? So the devil even quotes scripture, which is worth remembering because it's how we interpret it that's most important, right? And he uh, misquote just like he misquotes God in uh, in Genesis. Yeah, that's right. right? That's right. Same pattern. Um, but he tries to use that against Jesus, um, and we can think about lots of different symbols here and values for this. But uh, surely, if he had jumped down and a bunch of angels had sort of lifted him up, uh, people would have gone, "Wow, he must be from God." Whereas Jesus, in his ministry, right, chooses the path that calls people to actual faith. And again, requiring them to exercise their human agency mm -hmm. in a way that is meritorious, right? right? There'd be no merit to believing that Jesus is the Messiah if he fluttered down from the temple. Yeah. Right? It'd be incontrovertible. That's right. He does lots of miracles um, uh, and has lots of demonstrations of his divine power. Um, but uh, this temptation to do something that's just for himself and that would maybe just let him out of the cross... He doesn't, uh, he doesn't go with. And then finally, the temptation to glory and to reign over all the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, and Jesus says, no, I will only serve the Lord God. Jesus puts himself squarely right, against Satan and for the sake of the mission of redemption. Right? Um, in Paul's words from Philippians chapter 2, right, emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant, even though he is in fact God over all, right, the Lord of all, taking on the form of a servant so that he might, through his death and then his resurrection, save us. Uh, and uh, this is something that we see here of Jesus Christ, and it's something we're also called to enter into. We who aren't without sin, but very definitely uh, need to do penance uh, for our own particular sins. And a lot of people have seen a, a, a comparison in the temptations Jesus undergoes, a lot of people in the church's tradition, to the temptations that uh, are mentioned in Genesis 3 in our reading with Eve. She sees that the tree will be yummy for her tummy, right? that it will be good for food, that it's appealing to the eyes, and that it's desirable to make her wise so that she and Adam can be like gods on their own and independent. And Jesus is tempted with food, tempted with glory, and then also tempted with uh, 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 taking the kingdoms of the world and being the king, not over the kingdom of God, but over a different kingdom, uh, independent of the divine plan that he made with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. Um, and we are tempted in those ways and often fall. And so we get to all the time, hopefully, but especially in the season of Lent, practice our own self-control and faithfulness and devotion in penance toward God to deny ourselves desires of food, finding other ways in our penances to deny ourselves desires for glory, and in all things, submitting ourselves to God, not trying to become independent of him, but to try to have that agency, that freedom, that choice under him to actually choose what's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to give ourselves to the cross, mm. right? That uh, that antitype to the tree of knowledge and good and evil, right? That latter tree where God's righteousness is manifested and revealed and given to us, and where the true significance of sin and all its severity and hideousness is also finally revealed.
Amen. Amen. Well, with that, uh, blessings on your Lent uh, as you conform yourself to Christ's cross. This has been a Formed in the Word podcast, a production of the Augustan Institute. For more inspiring and informative content like this, please visit formed.org.